we are doing this uh, series of conversations called Battleground Nativity, and, and I know it's a weird deal to talk about war on Christmas. Um, we're not talking about Walmart greeters that say season's greetings instead of Merry Christmas, or that's not what this is. Uh, this is because I believe we have um, missed the point of Christmas when we take out and remove all of its intensity. The original Christmas was an intense event on earth. It was uh, urgent. It was essential. And, uh, and we have boiled it down to, you know, uh, eggnog and parties and, and presents and stuff. But, uh, but I want us to re-inject some of the intensity that Christmas was actually meant to have because it was an advance of the light of God against the darkness, the ever-present darkness of this world that we all know about. We know it exists because we know the world is not the way it should be. We can't explain why it's that way, but we know that it's not the way it should be. What happens when we get cynical is we misplace our intensity. We're still intense about things. We're just not intense about Christmas, <laughs> at least not in the way we should be. We might be intense about what's under the tree, but we're intense about other things, you know, uh, sports, for example, you know, and, and what coach our college hired to coach our football team, you know, this week, you know, uh, some of y'all uh, got a little intense probably about that this week, Aggie fans, whoop, or whatever, yeah, and uh, <laughs> easily the richest guy named Jimbo who's ever lived, easily <laughs> at this point, what, 800 million a year or something, what, what was it, I can't remember, so anyway, um, I'm getting off topic, um, but the the things we get intense about are a little ridiculous, if you think about it. I mean, I, I got really intense this week, and the most, the most intense I got this week, I'm ashamed to say, was not in preparation for this sermon or here in worship. The most intense part of my week was uh, playing this video game that my kids and I discovered. And, and we, oh my gosh, I'm not much of a gamer. We found this game to play together on my iPad where, where we're on a team together and we're fighting with these real people who are in other parts of the world, you know, and, and they all have their avatars and we have ours. And it's like Minecraft, but you shoot at each other and, and, and you're on a team against other people who have, you know, they're real too, and they're from all over the world, and you're on these missions, and you're trying to take each other out. And my kids and I are just screaming and yelling and crying and laughing, and, and as I'm playing this game with them, it's just so much fun. We don't want it to end. When it's time to end, basically is when Mama says it's time to end, and we're like, no, you know, all three of us. And because it's bedtime, right, I've got to put the kids down, and so, so they'll brush their teeth, they, they lay down, and then every night we do the same routine. We say a prayer together. So I'll pray with one, uh, with, with my son, and then I'll go pray with my daughter. Or if, or if Giovanna's putting them down, she'll pray with the one and the other. And that's kind of our routine. What I noticed, and I felt so convicted about this as it was happening, I noticed a stark difference between the intensity with which we played the video game and the intensity with which we prayed to God in heaven. The video game was all like a 10 out of 10 on the intensity scale, <laughs> like the energy in that room was palpable. And when it ended, none of us wanted it to end. The prayer, on the other hand, was rather scripted and predictable and pleasant, but boring. No one was sad when prayer time was over. <laughs> and so I noticed this disparity in intensity, and I, I've just been wondering since then why it is that things that should matter most, like talking to your creator and singing songs together to him 
and connecting with each other, connecting with God through worship and prayer and things like that, why those things are boring, while stupid things like college football and, and video games, things that don't really matter, really get us worked up. Why is it that we've shifted our intensity from substantive things that matter to things that don't? That's the question I've been wrestling with. I want us to address that question today through the lens of a story that most of you probably know of. You may not know the details of this story. You may be mistaken about the details of this story of the three wise men is what we've come to call it. It is uh, found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'm just going to read this one, and, um, and you all can follow along in your Bibles or on your study guides or on the screens. Matthew, 12, uh, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's, all the chiefs, all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the, the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had, that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another road. So th there's, uh, there's some parts of this story, I think, that we do know. I mean, uh, we know generally about these magi coming um, to, uh, to visit Jesus, but I think there's several details we get wrong. I know this to be true because that song we just sang is probably on my bottom three songs all time. I really struggle with We Three Kings of Orient are. I think the band did that song a little bit to turn the knife a little bit with me because I told them I don't like the song and they did it anyway. But I'll be generous and gracious. There are some things in that song that I do like. I love the struggle of light and darkness that's represented in the song. I love the idea of sacrifice and service and things like that, gift giving and all that. It's great. It's great. But there's serious flaws with the song, at least four major flaws in the title of the song alone. Before you even get to the lyrics of the song, just the title, four significant errors. First of all, We Three Kings. Nobody knows how in the world we got the idea that they were kings. They were never mentioned as kings. This is the only story in Matthew's gospel of this account. There's not another one in Luke where there are kings, you know, like it's not, it's not like that. They just, at some point, this songwriter had the idea that they were kings. They were not kings of anything. They were magi. Magi were ancient astrologers. They were mystics. They were fortune tellers, palm readers, dream interpreters. They predicted the future based on what the constellations were doing in the sky and things like that. This was a real profession for people. We have archaeological, all kinds of evidence that throughout the region, magi were employed by kingdoms and governments and powerful people so that they would know what's coming. Makes sense, right? They were magi, not kings. 
The second thing that's wrong about the title is that that word kings insinuates that they were all men, and we don't know that for, for sure either. Magi were men or women back in the day. There's evidence of female magi existing. So the people that go to visit Jesus and give him their gifts could have been men or women. If you've seen the movie, the Christmas movie that's out right now, what's it called? The, the Gift? Is it The Gift? The Star. That's, the Gift is a horror movie. Don't watch that one. The Star... <laughs> I just remembered. The star. <laughs> Come on, kids. I'm just kidding. So um, <laughs> uh, the star is a, is a Christmas cartoon movie where there's actually, they put a, a, a female magi in there. That's pretty cool, I thought, because they get it right. But generally, we think of them as men. Your nativity scenes have three dudes riding camels, uh, looking like kings. Uh, and usually one of them's black, one of them's white, and one of them's uh, either Hispanic or Asian, just to, you know, run the gamut, you know what I'm saying? Um, to be inclusive in your nativity scene. Uh, I'll just hate to break it to you, but they should not be in your nativity scene at all. They didn't show up until two years later, and they were never at that nativity scene anyway. In fact, just throw your whole nativity scene away um, <laughs> when you get home. The third thing that's wrong with this story is that it says that with the, with the song, I'm sorry, the song title is that there were three we don't know how many there were. We know they brought three gifts, but there could have been two magi. There could have been 200 magi. They could have they undoubtedly traveled as a group, as a group of foreign emissaries or dignitaries to go and welcome this king, this foreign king, right? So I'm guessing there were probably many more than just three that traveled together. So if you want to be accurate, get, you know, 200 dudes on camels around your nativity scene at home if you keep it. And number four, uh, uh, the song says they were from the Orient which I think is like an offensive thing now. You can't say that anymore. So we sing it with all our hearts, you know, Orient, Orient. Like, I, you don't want to say that anymore. But they were not from there anyway, so it doesn't matter. Wherever the Orient is, they were not from there. So they were probably from the, the kingdom of Persia, the neighboring kingdom of Persia. Persia was known for having magi employed by um, governments and powerful people. And so um, it would have been common then for the king of Persia to send these magi as diplomats to the neighboring kingdom to welcome the newborn king of the Jews. So these magi in this story in Matthew 2, they're following protocol. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They are rule followers, right? They are standard operating procedure guys. So they go from Persia, their homeland, to check in in Jerusalem. Before following the start of Bethlehem, they check in in Jerusalem with King Herod. Why? Because he's the sitting king. They probably think the newborn king is King Herod's heir. That's how it worked. Even though King Herod wasn't a real king, he was a puppet king put in place by the Romans. The Romans were really in charge. If you've ever been confused by that, King Herod was not a Roman king. He was a puppet king. He was kind of like Dwight Schrute whenever Michael Scott left the office, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you're the assistant to the regional manager, whatever. Like, that's kind of what it worked like. And they gave him the title so that he kept the peace, right? And so that's how it worked with, with King Herod. But these, these foreign magi checked in with, with him because that's what you did. And King Herod wasn't happy about this new king of the Jews because he was the king of the Jews and this was a threat to him. And so he hatches this sinister plot. He's like, yeah, go find the baby and then come back and tell me his address so I can go and worship him. And nobody thinks Herod, ruthless, selfish Herod, wanted to go and worship the baby Jesus. And so, um, so he has this, this plan in mind. The Magi, they did as they were told by Herod. They go to Bethlehem. They find Jesus. They worship Jesus. They offer Jesus gifts. But before leaving, and this is fascinating to me, before they leave Jesus' house, God warns them in a dream not to go back to Jerusalem. 
God warns them not to go back to Herod because he's up to no good. And so these foreign dignitaries who've been following the rules, these foreign emissaries who've been following protocol, standard operating procedure, by the book, they become these rogue double agents because God calls them to be spies for his kingdom. They go back to Persia by another road, subverting the sitting king, King Herod. This is, uh, this is just fascinating stuff from start to finish to me, and I think we miss the point when we just boil it down to something sentimental happening when these three guys on camels brought gifts to baby Jesus. There's more going on here than you think. In fact, the idea, the very notion that our God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, God most high, the one true God, would go out of his way to speak to and reach and call these unbelieving foreign pagan astrologers to be a part of his plan. This is radical stuff. So our God, it should not be lost on us that our God calls whoever he wants to serve him however he wants. And he speaks their language when he does it. Our God doesn't play by our rules of religion. He doesn't ask them to join the right church before they serve him. And so he speaks to them in their language. They are stargazers for a living. And so how does the God of Israel speak to them? With a star. These pagan astrologers are dream interpreters by trade. So how does the God of Israel speak to them? With a dream. I don't know where you stand today, but I I hope that you know that even if you feel like a fish out of water at church, even if you feel like you don't speak the language these other people around you are speaking, even if some of the stuff I've said is religious speak or Christian ease, and you feel lost, you don't need to speak my language to speak the language of God, to understand his call and his voice. He calls out to you in whatever language you speak, based on where you come from, your own experiences, your own stand, standpoint with religion, your own worldview. He will speak to you in whatever language you're able to hear. He does that with these magi, and he calls them in their language to protect, to be a shield around Jesus and his mom and dad. They play a vital role in this story because Herod and his henchmen are coming. The Magi, they leave Joseph's house in Bethlehem and and Joseph and Mary and Jesus are left there with these gifts that the Magi brought. I don't think they know what's coming next. They just know their living room is suddenly full of gold and frankincense and myrrh, which we've kind of grown accustomed to, but must have been a total shock to them, especially when you consider that gold, the only one of these that any of us knows what it is, right? Gold was the least valuable of the three gifts. Myrrh was incredibly rare and valuable and precious, and so was frankincense to a lesser degree. Gold was the least valuable of the three gifts, and now Mary and Joseph's living room is full of these highly sought-after, precious uh, gifts. And, And if you can imagine Mary and Joseph just standing there staring at these treasure chests, Imagine Jesus playing with the boxes they came in, like because he's two years old at this point, right? That's what two-year-olds do, but Mary and Joseph are just totally taken with this because you have to understand their lives are different now. Everything has changed. They've won the lottery. These two teenagers who've been living hand-to-mouth their whole lives, who've literally prayed daily bread, God, please, just daily bread today, just help me eat today, suddenly are the richest people in Bethlehem, easily. This is probably the first time they've ever been in the vicinity of gold, much less frankincense and myrrh. 
And so everything is different. What are they supposed to do with all of this money all of a sudden? I think the next verse in Matthew kind of tells us what they're supposed to do with it. Because in Matthew 2, verse 13, after the Magi left, the angel of God appeared to Joseph in a dream. And that's when the angel says, get up and take your family to Egypt. They get up in the middle of the night and they leave in the middle of the night to go to Egypt. But as we talked about last week, the, the, the thought, the question must have been on their minds. What are we going to do in Egypt? Where are we going to stay? How are we going to live? Well, that question feels a little different when you're a poor peasant from nowhere, when you're a nobody from the middle of nowhere, than it does when you've got a living room full of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want you to imagine a scene. This is just silly, but imagine Joseph and Mary rolling into one of Egypt's, uh, you know, premier hotels with uh, two-year-old Jesus sleeping on Mary's shoulder. Imagine Joseph standing at the front desk, and the receptionist judges them based on their appearance and says, I've got a twin bed on the first floor with a view of the dumpster. Would you, would you like that, sir? And Joseph's a high roller now, you know? Joseph's like, I'm going to need something a little nicer than that today. Could you get anything on the top floor? And Mary's like, oh, Joseph, you know, like, like there's all this, there's all this intrigue, right? Because suddenly everything has changed. Suddenly God, through the foreign pagan magi, has provided safe passage for a journey that otherwise would have been incredibly dangerous, treacherous, life-threatening even. They would be asking questions like, do we stay on the streets or in a poorhouse or do we just squat somewhere? But now they are provided for by the grace of God through the magi and their generosity. And it just got me thinking this week about all the times God has provided all the times along the journey, every fork in the road of my journey when this unexpected check showed up in the mail for exactly the amount that my family needed to keep the lights on, you know, back in the day and, and, and little, little things where a door would open that I didn't even know existed, you know, little calls of encouragement when I didn't really want to live anymore, you know, has, has God ever provided safe passage for you on your journey? How quickly we forget how quickly we forget all the little things God does for us along the way to allow us to be here today among these people, maybe with our friends or with our family in connection with God and loving relationship with God, forgiven and free. We forget all the little things that bring us to this point in our lives, don't we? We take it all for granted. God is always providing safe passage for us through our journeys. Sometimes we forget to be thankful. The meaning, I think, of Christmas is that word we sing, uh, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is, uh, is a, a word we, we always sing and talk about at Christmas. I'm not sure we understand the radical significance of Emmanuel. The idea that God has come to be with us, that's what it literally means, God with us. What's it mean on your journey that God is with you? If you believe the Christmas promise, and I know not everybody here does yet, but keep an open mind, but if you believe that it's true that God put on skin and walked among us, that he knows every darkness you've ever known, that he's lived through worse pain than you've ever felt, that he knows what it's like to be alone, humiliated, forsaken, abandoned. He knows what it's like to live deep in darkness than you have to wrestle with the possibility that God is with you in your darkness, and that you are never alone. And whatever battle you're facing, you're never alone in that battle. No matter how bad it gets, 
God has broken through time and space to come and live with us now. Emmanuel, God with us. We are never alone in this fight, no matter how hard it may seem. We've been talking about this fight, and what I mean with this is not against people. We're not fighting people. It's a spiritual fight. We know there's something off about this world. There's too much injustice, too much evil. I believe we as people of God are called to fight against that with his light, with his truth. I think that's what Christmas is. It's a call to arms against the spiritual forces of darkness that sometimes rule this world. Ephesians 6 really fleshes out for us. It's a passage that's about the full armor of God. We've been talking this uh, passage up for four weeks now, and every week I just ask that you read it with me, and you may be tired of it by now, but I'm going to ask you just re-energize yourself and read this passage with me again and let the word soak into your hearts. We're going to read it a little bit further than we did last week as we continue to explore these armor, this armor of God. So read with me if you, if you don't mind. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So we've talked about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the shoes of readiness. And today we're talking about the shield of faith. I think about faith and how it is a shield. And I'm afraid that what you're going to think is that it's your beliefs that shield you from the, from the flaming arrows of the evil one. And that it's all about your beliefs shielding you. I want to challenge your thinking around that. Faith is more than mere belief. Faith is putting your belief to action. Faith is acting on what you know to be true. Faith is the engagement of your will with the will of God in this world. And so when we think about what that means to have a shield of faith, biblically speaking, what does it mean to do the will of God, to engage your will with the will of God on earth? Look at this biblically, y'all. The, the Bible begins with a question. After Cain kills his brother, Abel, and God is looking for Abel, Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And the rest of the Bible I believe is God's answer, is God's response to that question. That question sets in motion what happens throughout the rest of the Bible. Am I my, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes. Again and again, God shows us, especially through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we are to keep one another. It's what it means to do the will of God. To hold the shield of faith means more than just cowering alone behind your own shield. It means looking out for those who have no protection. Looking around you, outside yourself, and understanding there are people in the world who are forgotten. People who should have been protected but are not. People who are vulnerable and susceptible to attack by our enemy in his darkness. 
They are around us every single day. We do not cower behind the shield of God that he holds for us. He put the shield in our hands. Who are we shielding in this war with darkness? I believe that we either consciously fight against these forces of darkness going on in our city and in our homes, or we are complicit with them. We either fight them or we're complicit with them. I think about uh, going to Christmas parties, you know, and uh, Christmas parties are always awkward. Let me tell you, Christmas parties are especially awkward when you are a pastor because inevitably somebody's going to ask you what you do for a living. And at any party, but especially at a Christmas party, there is a certain reaction they have when you tell them you're a pastor. Now, I would love to have the privilege some of y'all have. I'd love to say, well, I'm in oil and gas. Or, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a landman. That's what I do. I'm a landman. And, I, you know, I'm an accountant. I'm in medicine or whatever. I'd love to have, because they bring you a drink when you say you're an accountant. <laughs> you're a pastor. The conversation's over. And this is no fun. But the truth is, I say I'm a pastor because I'm afraid of telling people in a setting of like, like a party, I'm afraid of telling people what I really think that I do. Because what I really think that I do looks a little bit more like that video game I play with my kids where I'm like slaying dark forces. You know, what I really think that I do, I think I'm a slayer of darkness. I think I'm a destroyer of demons. I think every day that I pray, every day that I teach my kids how to pray, every time we give money to something, some worthy... God cause, you know, in the world. Every time I help someone in need, I believe I am pushing back the forces of darkness trying to get in. I tried to get this point across to a small group this week where we were meeting, and there were some stay-at-home moms there, and they were like, I just look for purpose sometimes because I don't know what I'm doing with my life, and I wish I had a career, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, do you understand what you're doing? Even, like, as a mother with your kids, with your home? Do you understand your potential for praying a hedge around your kids, protecting them spiritually, fighting back the forces of evil that are trying to tempt your kids into being video game addicts because dad won't stop playing video games with them? Like, do you have any idea your potential and your power as spirit-filled daughters and sons of the most high God? Listen, destroying demons and slaying darkness is not just my job. It's all of our job. I know that it's overwhelming because, man, there's so many people that need shielding. And I don't want to be a downer, but I've got to be for a second because I think what happens is we get overwhelmed by all that there is to be done, all the people there are who are unprotected and suffering under the weight of injustice in this world, and, and they have been dealt a hand that's so much worse than the ones we've been dealt. And we get cynical about people, and so we get intense about other things, video games and college football, and we get intense about pets. How many of us, be honest, spend more money on our pets than we do on protecting some lonely child of God, on shielding someone who has no one else? Man, I don't know. I haven't done the math, but I spend a lot of money on Limp Biscuit. <laughs> I'm serious. That's my dog. So I spend, like, is he a fan of the band? No, it's my dog. <laughs> I buy these little bags of food, they're like 20 bucks a pop, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and he eats a lot, you know? And sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder about priorities, y'all. And I think we do it because we're cynical about people. Dogs and cats don't let us down. Dogs don't let us down because their love is perfect and cats 
don't let us down because you don't really expect anything from them anyway. And people, though, people will hurt you. They will disappoint you. You'll think to yourself, if I just give money to that guy, he's going to go buy drugs with it instead of food. You know, I'm going to spend my money on something that really matters more of those organic cage-free chicken treats for Limp biscuit. You know, those kinds of things. It's crazy. It's crazy. If you spend more money on your pets than you do on shielding the vulnerable children of God, it's an abomination unto the Lord. Just read the Bible. Read the verses I've listed at the end of the study guide. Just read those at home. It's very clear. There's no clearer command from scripture and we can do better. There's an example of an organization that does better. It's, a, it's an organization I became familiar with um, in Kansas City. I was leaving my church office in Kansas City and in the parking lot in Kansas City, I was suddenly surrounded by 50 or so Harley Davidsons and they were all, picture me, like dressed like this around a bunch of leather bound like dudes with mustaches, you know, and uh, women with mustaches and like a <laughs> crazy scene, right? And they're suddenly all around me, and I was intimidated, but then they told me what they're there for. I just wanted you to, to know about this organization called BACA. Check it out. Every year in this country, more than half a million children are abused. Many don't know where to go for help. For some, though, help is coming to them. Guardian angels, not with wings, but with wheels. Here's Elaine Quijano. For years, Karen and her nine-year-old daughter, whose identity we're protecting, were abused by Karen's husband. It was terrifying when you can't close your eyes at night to go to sleep because you don't know what's going to happen. You, it's the unknown that you're afraid of. Fearing for their lives, Karen found help from an unlikely group of people. Look at them all. Here they come. These 15 men and women are part of a 3,000-member organization committed <laughs> to protecting children around the world. How are you? They call themselves BACA. Bikers Against Child Abuse. One thing that we try to do as an organization is to help that child feel empowered so they can enjoy their childhood and grow up as an adult, knowing that there's always going to be somebody there and not all adults are bad. Happy Dodson is the president of the Connecticut chapter, which is currently helping eight families across the state. Hey, young lady. How's school? They help by stepping into the void left by an overwhelmed court system and by forming a cocoon of support around the abused child, pledging 24-7 protection. Each member goes through an extensive federal background check and adopts child-friendly road names like Scooter, Shaggy, and Pooh Bear. If the child has problems sleeping or afraid to get on the bus or afraid to go to school, we're there. We'll take you to school. We'll catch the bus. We'll pick you up when that bus drops you off. We'll take you home. And if need be, we'll stay in that yard until you feel comfortable. For some of the members, it's personal. They, too, were abused. I've known a lot of kids when I was growing up that were under that umbrella of being afraid and nobody around to help. That's why we're here. When you met them for the first time, what was your impression? It was overwhelming. I gave each one of them a hug because they were there for me, you know, and I needed them. What was it like for your daughter? It was nice to know that all these people were on her side, that she had that backup, you know, and that she wasn't alone. Baca's motto is no child deserves to live in fear. Because of them, this young girl no longer does. Elaine Quijano, CBS News, Derby, Connecticut. What does it, uh, what does it mean to live with faith at a time like Christmas? 
does it mean to hold the shield of faith at a time like this? I believe for each of us it means extending the promise of Christmas beyond our own living rooms this year. Extending the promise of Christmas beyond our own families and friends. Because we all know someone outside of that tight-knit circle of our kin, our relatives and friends. We all know someone who is without an advocate, defenseless, unprotected. Someone who needs for a season to be shielded by the promise of faith. You know someone in prison right now who needs a friend. You know someone on your street, maybe someone who lives on your street, like my friend Q, who takes all of his possessions up and down the street in two shopping carts from H-E-B. He doesn't know where he is most of the time, but I hope he knows I'm his friend. He can depend on me and call on me anytime he needs something. I, I know we all know someone like this, the elderly living in nursing homes who feel put out to pasture, who just need a visit once in a while. I know we know someone who maybe not now, but maybe one day will be in danger of being trafficked or taken advantage of in this city. Maybe it's someone who, you know, helps you out around the house, cleans or does your yard work, somebody who just needs a little extra something right now that you can enter in. Be a shield for them like God called the Magi to shield Jesus for a time to make his will done on earth. I know all of us know someone in need of a little bit of protection I, I shared this message in the earlier services, obviously, and when I did, we had trees out there full of these ornaments, these ornaments for uh, Covenant House, and every ornament represented a child whose name we can't give you because we're protecting their identity because they've been abused or they're runaways or they've been forgotten by the people who should have protected them the most. Every ornament represents a living child. And I challenge this congregation to live outside themselves and to know that every time you give a present to a child who has nothing, it's more than just a present. It's a promise. It's protection. It's reminding them that they'll never be alone, that there's people that care. There's a God who loves them. After the 940 service, I looked out on those trees and all the ornaments were gone. So there's nothing left for y'all to do. Y'all can go home. I'm just kidding. No, there, there's plenty of more kids to give to. You just got to check in at the desk now instead of getting your own ornament. We had no idea what the response would be. That's just one small way to make a difference this Christmas so that we get outside of ourselves where our enemy wants us to keep our Christmas locked behind our doors. To get Christmas out into the world, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, shielding those who have no defense. That's my challenge to you. This Christmas, to live beyond yourself, to take your shield of faith outside your own home and protect someone who's in need. Protect them with intensity as Jesus has protected you. In Jesus' name, amen.